Welcome to Season 5 of the Art of Teaching Podcast. My name is Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you took the time to listen. When I started this podcast at the beginning of 2021, I had no idea that the episodes and discussions would resonate with so many educators across the globe. So thank you to all those that have downloaded, listened to, shared and reviewed the podcast. It means the world to know that there are teachers out there that are benefiting from these discussions. Associate Professor Craig Hassard has been working within the Faculty of Medicine at Monash University since 1989. He is also the coordinator of mindfulness programs across the university. He has authored hundreds of papers and has published multiple books. Craig was the founding president of Meditation Australia and is a long-term friend and ambassador of Smiling Mind. In 2019, Craig was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, OAM, for his services to medicine. In this interview, we talked about many things, including why mindfulness is our natural state, how we can become more mindful, and how to savour the moment and to start noticing the important things again. It was an incredible privilege to speak with Craig, and I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Dr. Craig Hassad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. It's good to be with you, Matthew. It's, uh, I, I've been a huge fan of your work uh, for a really long time, so uh, I can't wait to, uh, to dig into some of your incredible research. But before we get started, uh, probably the most important question, what is your coffee order? I've never had a coffee in my whole lifetime. That is amazing. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. Uh, yeah. Someone in academia who does not <laughs> do drink tea. I enjoy tea, yes. And that's no uh, particular anti-caffeine sort of thing. I just, as a child, never liked the smell of coffee and uh, also never liked the smell of um, cigarettes. So they're, they're two things I decided that I never particularly wanted to try. So, and uh, and so far, so good. So um, mind you that to see people come onto the campus in the morning and, and the reverence and devotion, perhaps even, you know, the sense of urgency with which they cling to their coffee cups and uh, have those, <clears throat> I can see how devoted a lot of people are to their coffee, but I'm not one of them. So uh... <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. I've just finished reading a book by uh, Michael Pollan on caffeine, and I am considering um, <laughs> abstaining after reading his uh, amazing work. But it's really interesting that you, uh, you, you don't drink <laughs> coffee. Um, is there an item that is still on your bucket list that you are yet to tick off? Look, I've never really formed a, a, a great big um, bucket list. Um, <clears throat> I suppose doing a well, I don't know whether it'll be doing a long sort of um, retreat in silence. Um, I mean, I've done a few retreats, but maybe something more prolonged, who knows? Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, I enjoy travel and a lot of beautiful places in the world, but I don't have a list of things that I want to go out to. I think uh, probably my bucket list is to, uh, to go very deeply within. I think that'd be nice, but you know, the, the life is pretty active with work and everything else. So that's sort of luxury of the time to really travel inward, yeah. um, spend more time with that, uh, something yeah. I look forward to. 
And uh, finally, is there a book uh, that you have read which is outside of your um, academic work uh, that has made you kind of pause and reconsider things? Uh, yeah, look, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm very philosophically inclined and I think that the, you know, I, I my bread and butter, um, as far as things I enjoy reading it from the world's great wisdom traditions. Um, so uh, anything platonic, I love. The original, not what people write about Plato, but the original or the classic um, Eastern texts from the Vedic tradition, um, the Buddhist, the Sufi tradition. So look, I, I just, um, I suppose I gobble up um, things from the world's great wisdom traditions. Um, that's, uh, that's my bread and butter for food for my mind. <laughs> Interesting, very interesting. It seems that there's a lot of uh, common threads in those ancient texts that you, you draw mm. into your academic work, and I'm sure we will uh, get to unpack some of that uh, as our conversation um, mm. progresses. But I'm just really interested, Craig, what was your uh, upbringing like? And uh, give us a bit of a snapshot of how you ended up here in the work that you're doing at the moment. Well, there was nothing particularly <clears throat> from my upbringing that... Um you know, sort of pointed me in this direction. My parents weren't medical at all. They weren't psychologists. They're not in the health setting at all. My father was quite artistic and uh, my mother, you know, in those days, secretarial work was a, a common kind of thing for women to do when they had fewer of the opportunities have now. Um, so but my parents just always encouraged us to follow what we're really interested in and passionate about. Don't just do it job because of money or something else it's do what you really want to do in your life and so I was always interested in the mind um, you know and not that I read about it but just more I suppose being studying people in the sense of being interested in watching people and learning from people and watching people's examples and 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 drawing qualities from people that were really you know interesting or admirable so so it was more sort of I was interested in the mind and also understanding my own mind like why do I feel tense or anxious why do I you know feel and to understand myself better and so that was in my my teenage years I guess and um so <clears throat> I chose medicine not because I was interested in the body but I thought I'll do medicine and then go on and do psychiatry because I thought that was meant to be about the mind but um, medicine was the last thing I wanted to do, but I thought, oh, well, I'll do it and do psychiatry. But too much in my teaching of psychiatry when I was in the medical course was not about the mind, it was about drugs. So I decided not to do the psychiatry, but maintain my interest in the mind. And, and again, in my teenage years, um, in dealing with stresses and worries and so on, I guess I stumbled on a lot of the elements of what I would now call mindfulness, but I sort of intuitively important staying present paying attention to what you can control in the moment rather than worrying about future and what you can't control and and not diving into the past and yeah. and um for some reason i i practiced meditation um well i thought you know when i was very disillusioned as a medical core uh, medical student in second year um for some reason i thought look meditation i didn't read any books on it or do any courses i just sort of sat down intuitively practiced what i I thought it might be and I I guess I've practiced um, a very deep form of what I would now call an open monitoring form of meditation of yeah. just simply sitting in awareness 
Yeah. And um, it really had a transformative effect. And that very much set the goal for my life, that experience as a, a disillusioned teenage medical student. Um, that was a very formative experience. I got out of the chair after practicing that. And pretty much that subtly set the path for my life. Um, so I guess it was very much an intuitively sort of driven process for me. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I, I don't think I was thinking about mindfulness when I was in my uh, early 20s <laughs> and thinking about an academic career. So uh, it, it, I find that really interesting that um, that for you, a lot of these practices were um, that they weren't necessarily based in any books that you have read. They were it was more of a, a, a a personal investigation and then did you then find research to back up what your some of your experiences were or was it the other way around or was it just sort of a, a general curiosity to 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 be a little bit more self-reflective self-reflective in your own life yeah well I mean in the 70s there wasn't really much research to look around and I wasn't interested in that but in in the um in my sort of early mid-20s yeah when um I first, you know, well, really started to expand the interest in in what the world's wisdom traditions had to say about things. And when I picked up, you know, some of these classic texts um, that are, you know, thousands of years old and read what they were talking about, it was like based on my direct experience, mm. the sense was, I know what they're talking about. Wow. Well, that's... <laughs> Oh, right. So this has been, you know, a topic for inquiry for a long time. So, so it wasn't kind of, oh, well, that's an interesting idea. It was, yes, what they're describing resonates directly with experience. And, um, and so that, that really, I suppose, drove my interest in pursuing that interest in wisdom. And then, then looking at, well, what has the science got to say, you know, later on and and then thinking in my career as initially a doctor, working with patients in general practice, and then thinking of medical education, we really need some of this practical or applied wisdom in healthcare, in mental health care, in the world at large. And so I guess I sort of thought, well, it's a bit of a challenge to find some kind of way of applying this and expressing mm -hmm. it in a modern language but based on um, this emerging field of science to try and give it, um, I suppose you'd say, new legs or new applications in the modern world. Wow. And um, so, you know, this sort of sense of the importance of waking up and being aware, which world's great wisdom traditions have spoken about for a long time. It's what does this mean when you're a GP in practice and helping patients to deal with stress and anxiety and, and how do you help people to cope with pain and adversity? And how do you help people to understand themselves better to make the healthy changes they need to make in their life? So there were so many applications for this very, very ancient knowledge wow. and the meditative practices that really um, reinforced that. So that's that's sort of the, the direction the career path went. Wow. It, it's really interesting because, I mean, these days we talk about mindfulness all of the time, and especially in my field and education and being present and looking after yourself and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, but sadly, that hasn't always been the case, has it? Do you think it's something which, is, uh, which has attracted a renewed focus? Um, or how has our, maybe our, um, our perspective of what mindfulness has changed over the last 40, 50 years? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't um, a thing when I started. It wasn't even a word that was used. Um, 
widely. There was there was some interest in meditation going back in the 70s. And, you know, obviously this is a very ancient practice, but it wasn't really very popular. There were some inroads in the um, uh, in the late 60s, 70s with, you know, the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. So meditation was kind of there, but it wasn't really very mainstream. Yeah. Um, but I think that as the, as modern life has sort of unfolded, the pace of life, the stresses, the escalation of mental health problems, um, difficulty coping with adversity and all sorts of things that are, and an increasing a level of distraction yeah. that's um, become enculturated these days. Yeah. And kids growing up with poor mental health and all these sorts of things that all of a sudden it's like a collective waking up. Whoa, what's happening? And what kinds of really basic solutions do we need to these sort of modern dilemmas yeah. that we're confronting? And yeah. so I think that it's a, a kind of a reawakening of yeah. these practices and of this wisdom that's, and um, a lot of it's come under the banner of what's called mindfulness, but it's like a, an antidote to a modern illness, as it were. And do you think, um, are you concerned with the direction that the trends are heading? Or do you think uh, we are able to reverse some of these trends in terms of our mental health and, and, and um, uh, teaching um, mindfulness to our children, for example? Well, look, I, I, I think that it's- um, Getting worse. Uh, yeah. yeah, look, the, the, the negative trends in terms of mental health problems and and distraction and so on. I think they've got a little bit of a way to run yet. Yeah. It's like we're trying to turn the Titanic and it's not like a speedboat, a speedboat that'll spin around yeah. and turn direction in no time at all. Society has sort of set this direction for some time and it's going to take quite a time to, to change direction. Um, but we really need to. Um, I'm very optimistic, of course, all of these problems have got basic causes. We just need to get back to the basic causes. And yeah. of course, we'll address the problem. Yeah. Better than treating it is to prevent it. And that's why education and working with kids is so, so important because, you know, we don't want another generation who are getting into a whole lot of strife. And then, and this is not in no way um, sort of speaking against treatments, you know, get the best treatments, but we've got to get back to the basic causes. And that's not, are going to be up in the long term a pharmaceutical solutions, getting back to the basic underlying yeah. causes, but far better is to prevent the problem in the first place by not getting into some really unhelpful habits. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that's where education, I think, is really um, so, so important. Fantastic. Craig, I'm interested, um, is there an area in your own life that you're currently trying to pay more attention to? Um, like, do you struggle with uh, attention and, and all of these things just like us other mere mortals or uh, is it a daily struggle for you or, or, or what's an area that you're trying to be a bit more present in? Oh, I had a moment of inattention last in 1997, I think, just for a moment or two. No, like, this is, we're all a work in progress as far as this is concerned. Yeah. And I think one of the things about you know, developing mindfulness in one's life that people often interpret progress as actually not being able to do it in the sense mm -hmm. that when people start practicing mindfulness and realizing how distractible the mind is, then they think, oh, I can't do it. I'm no good at it. And so on. And that's actually being aware of it is actually <laughs> progress. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, having some experience in this area, 
I am aware of distractibility of the mind, but it's easier to notice and it's easier to bring the attention back on track. Yeah. And it's easier not to take the fandoms of our imagination as, as real. You know, it's, it's like just to see imagination for what it is. It's yeah. easier to ground oneself back in the present moment. But this is very much a work in progress, like we're all a work in progress. And so, um, yeah, I practice this stuff every day, the formal meditation practice twice a day, practice being mindful in day-to-day -day life. You know, you've got a whole lot of stuff. It appears on your on your plate, work wise or outside of that. Just try and take it one step, one job, one moment at a time. Just pace yourself. You know, don't flash forward into the future. Just come back to the present. So, this is stuff I try to live by. And um, if I was perfect at it, I probably would be sitting in a cave right now, not talking to you. But um, I'm still very much uh, working on it, like you I probably mean, are as well, Matthew. <laughs> I appreciate that you allowed me to distract you this morning from your uh, from your cave of meditation. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful. But look, you actually distracted me from a previous um, Zoom call that uh, <laughs> finished a little bit after late. <laughs> look, I, I'm. It's. I mean, it's really interesting to see because obviously you um, are, are so acclaimed in terms of your um, your research and your and your practice. But to hear that you too. Uh, find it difficult to to switch off and to focus is uh, reassuring. Uh, like I said to the to, to the rest of the world. Well, I think it it gets easier in the sense that um, when we're new to it, we tend to notice the distractibility and then add criticism and judgment and negative self talk to it. And I think one of the the things about being more experienced is that we don't turn it into something more than it needs to be. So it kind of gets a whole lot easier because we stop criticizing what we're noticing. Yeah. We, we find it easier to be a little bit gentle with ourselves and not so judgmental, etc. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, um, yeah, that that's the sign of an expert and, and look, and with more practice, the mind does distract less often and it is easier to focus and so on so there's lots of room for optimism for <laughs> your listeners you've got to be optimistic otherwise i think you're in the wrong uh, the wrong profession um, mm. so it, it's good to know so what are some of these misconceptions of mindfulness i mean uh, from from my point of view it was something which uh, to be honest wasn't always a central practice to my personal and my professional life because to be honest i just didn't have time for it and i didn't see the value in it but after being someone who has uh, tried to practice it more on a regular level, uh, more regularly, sorry, and, and also work through uh, programs like Smiling Mind, which I know you're associated with with my class, um, I've seen an incredible value in that practice. But what are some of these misconceptions that people have about mindfulness? What is it? What isn't it? Um, how can we begin to uh, incorporate it into our daily lives? Well, misconceptions, let's start with that. I mean, there, there are lots and lots of misconceptions. Uh, one of the things I, I say is it's, it's not a relaxation exercise. <laughs> now, now, having said that, a person may well feel a lot more relaxed having practiced it because relaxation or feeling calmer is a very common side effect of being more mindful. Mm. But it's primarily an exercise in awareness. Yeah. It's like we're in a dark room uh, or a very dimly lit room. <clears throat> and what's the mindfulness practice? Well, it's like going over to the dimmer switch and starting to turn the lights up. And all of a sudden we start to see more of what's in the room. Um, we start to notice more. Um, we notice stuff that's out of place. We notice rubbish heaped up in the corner. <laughs> we, we notice things, you know. So, 
So it's primarily an exercise in awareness, which is like turning up the lights. Relaxation, if it happens, well and good, enjoy it. But if it doesn't happen, that doesn't mean that we're getting something wrong. Mm. So, so learning to mindfully work with, non-reactively work with the tension or the agitation or the fear or the frustration or some other uncomfortable experience we're having is a very important part yeah. of practicing mindfulness. So that's probably the first misconception is that it's, it's, um, it's not a relaxation exercise primarily. Um, or it's an exercise in trying to make my mind go blank. You know, it's like, um, oh, I'm trying to focus on the breathing and these thoughts come into my mind and what's wrong with me and I can't mm. keep these thoughts out and I'm not meant to be having thoughts. And Whereas it's really this sort of ability, if thoughts arise, to just stand back from them. I mean, if you're, if you're sitting in a cafe having a very nice cup of tea <laughs> and you're sitting on this little little table you know, outside the cafe and you're just watching the foot traffic go past up and down the footpath, it's not like you've got to stop all the foot traffic, traffic stop moving mm. you know, so I can get some peace. It's like, no, you're in a sense just sitting there watching it, just passing along the street. Yeah. Maybe there's a lot of people passing, maybe there are very few, but you're just learning to watch the mind, watch the thoughts, but without any particular involvement with them. You're not trying to stop it all. Now, that ability to step back from the thoughts gives you a bit of freedom, a bit of space from them, but it also develops our ability to, to choose which thoughts to give attention to. Yeah. Because mindfulness teaches us that we can use the mind, but in a whole lot more conscious and focused way. <clears throat> so, so it's not like trying to stop the mind, but developing this ability to non-attachment to what's going on in the mind, the thoughts, the emotions, but also this ability to discern about what's worth giving attention to and what's not. You know, so there are various other misconceptions, I suppose, but, you know, they're, they're actually very common. And so many people feel like oh, I'm getting mindfulness wrong because I can't relax or I can't stop my mind from thinking and so on, where it's a misunderstanding of yeah. mindfulness. Yeah. Um, That's, um, it's really interesting and, and, and it, it takes the pressure off as well. I think because when I uh, started trying to be more mindful, I think I'd read a book or something. I, I then started it started being about, okay, you got to do 20 minutes. you got to do 25 minutes. And then I thought, hang on a second. Then I start to feel bad because I'm not doing the time I should. And then I just said each day, and I, I, I try and do it each day, I'm just going to have five minutes of just trying to be mindful and to take <laughs> off that pressure of, of striving and trying to, trying to be more aware. It's actually, um, for me, I've noticed that it's actually about, uh, about quality, not quantity of time, and just mm. taking the time to have something regularly uh, each day or as much as I can um, and it really has been transformative and like I said the, um, in my classroom we use the Smiling Mind app um, every single day um, and that has been um, I think the single most impacting thing that that I have done as a classroom teacher with my students and I know that you're affiliated with Smiling Mind would you mind maybe just telling me a little bit about your experience with that wonderful company and also what you hope um, um, uh, to achieve through that. Yes, well, I'm an ambassador for Smiling Mind and, and um, um, I think they do some wonderful work. You know, in the early days um, before Smiling Mind was a thing, had some conversations with um, 
you know, James and uh, Jane, the, the people who instigated it and um, and fantastic work that they did. Um, they got a great team on board, developed some fantastic um, and and the very philanthropic motivation that they had, mm. you know, that this is going to be free and to support the well-being, mainly of children, but of anybody in the community. So they've done a fantastic job. And then, of course, it's grown enormously since then. Yeah. And is one of the very, very top mindfulness apps in the world for, for any, um, any uh, application. So they've done a fantastic job. So I, I'm an ambassador for them and, um, and very much encourage people to use this very high quality yeah. um, material and content that they have there. Um, and I'll make sure yeah. I put a link, obviously, to all of that in the show. Yeah. That people can yeah. check it out because it really has been transformative. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a great resource. It, you know, the, the thing with using those kinds of resources as well is if you have a teacher who has some actual understanding, some experience of it, and then is, um, uh, and is using it with a, a level of motivation, level of understanding, then it really helps the kids to connect with it. If you've just got a disinterested, distracted, um, unmotivated teacher, oh, yeah, i got to do a bit of a mindfulness thing. All right, you sit down, kids, just presses play on an app while they're, I don't know, while they're scrolling their phone or something <laughs> yeah. else. It's like, whoa, whoa, what you're teaching is distraction. Yeah. Yeah. What you're teaching is inattention. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I think that's why sometimes things like that don't connect, you know, is because they're, they're not being well integrated in the classroom. Yeah. One, of, one of the other misconceptions about mindfulness as well is that it's it's just meditation. Yeah. You know, it's just that 20 minutes or five minutes or however long you're sitting in a chair, but it's very much a way of life. Yeah. So the aim of the, the meditation practice is to live mindfully. And if, mm. and if a teacher can really embody that in the classroom and really be very present with the, the kids and, you know, really listen when they're speaking really help the children to manage their attention in the classroom and so on, create a mindful environment. Then even when the teacher's not even conscious, they're teaching mindfulness, they're teaching mindfulness by example. And I think that's a really important message for teachers, I think. Well, do you think mindfulness is a, is a natural state? Like, are we all born, um, sorry, is it a skill that we have to learn or essentially relearn? <laughs> um, well, look, look into the eyes of a child of six months or one-year-old. Mm. You tell me, Matthew, are they in the present moment? Well, I'm or are just they thinking... sitting there worrying about yeah. how much superannuation they're going to have by the time they turn 70? Or... <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about my own, my own children. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, and they are absolutely, when they are playing, they are absolutely in the present moment. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was actually um, spending some time with them yesterday just running around our apartment and going crazy in a confined space um but they absolutely embodied being present and um i think with many things with schooling it's a case of um unlearning a lot of the things that we are yeah. taught um yeah yes so i so i very much um am of the view that being mindful is natural yeah um it is the natural state and for a young child, totally in the present moment, like the attention's on high beam. Yeah. Um, but the capacity to control the attention, yeah. um, to direct it and sustain it, those things develop with maturity, you know, into 
adolescents, adulthood, and so on. So that's a very high level executive function to manage our attention effectively. But basically, the attention's all there in the moment, not worrying about the future, not dredging up mm. the past. What happens from a relatively early age, and there are two main things I think that happen, is we start to think and worry our way out of the present moment. You know, we weren't born worrying about the future. That's a habit we get into, and mostly because it's being modelled by adults. Wow. So adults teach kids like how to worry and <laughs> negative self-talk and so on. And it's, mind you, this is a kind of an enculturated thing, you know, generation after generation. It's not about blame. It's just like this is the world we're living in and we're bombarded by stuff in media and all of this sort of stuff that we get caught up into um, this sort of internal rumination and distraction. Wow. That it, but also we've got to add to it these days is the distraction of technology. Uh, that is a new thing in the last 20, 30 years or so of increasingly with, you know, phones and smartphones and everything else is there's this other kind of distraction, which is quite addictive as well. It, the kids are particularly um, subject to. And um, so learning mindfulness as an older child <clears throat> or as an adult is not learning some new skill. It's redeveloping, redeveloping a capacity that's being undermined by the kind of world that we live in, um, by the kind of um, distractions that we have. Wow. And so that's, that's where teaching it. So it's um, distraction, if you like, worry, rumination, those things become second nature, wow. as in habitual. The rediscovery of mindfulness is coming back to our real nature. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's not discovering something that's foreign to us or something that's novel to us it's actually like coming back to something that's actually innate but has been totally covered and um from an early age wow wow it's, it's it is really interesting to see like i said with my own children and also the students i have the privilege of teaching is that it, um they're absolutely present and i think i was thinking about my daughter the other day she was dressing up as elsa and nobody could have told her that she wasn't Elsa. She completely embodied <laughs> that persona, went to the shops, was doing all of the stuff that Elsa does. And it was a really wonderful reminder, I think, that, um, uh, that kids don't need to be taught how to do that. And sadly, that is lost as we progress to adulthood, which I think is really sad. But it's good to know that we can get back to some of those um, foundational things and, and, and mindfulness is a, is a natural state, like you were saying. That, that you see, and that's right. And, and, and if we can be in the moment as teachers, as parents, as mentors, because if we can be in the present moment ourselves, then we're with the child, then we're teaching mindfulness to the child. One lady, I often give this sort of examples that come up in courses that run, and one, one lady, learning mindfulness itself to cope with, you know, stress and pressure and, you know, life. And, um, and uh, but she described these examples from her day-to-day -day life, like she's trying to get the kids into the car and, you know, got to go somewhere. And she's got the child by the hand trying to get to the car. And she and all of a sudden she notices um, resistance. That there's child's pulling in another direction. Hey, come on, we've got to get going. We've got to get going. And all of a sudden, she had a mindful moment. She, whoa, 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 stop a moment. And she turned around, she just turned her attention to a child, and her child was transfixed by these beautiful red flowers in the garden um, on, the, on the driveway on the way to the car. Gosh. And all of a sudden, she just, whoa, stop for a moment. 
Yeah. She just got down on her haunches and they looked at these beautiful red flowers together for a moment, just savoured this sort of little beautiful moment. And she realised that the child was mindful of what the parent was doing in that situation with the best intentions in the world is kind of teaching the child not to savour the moment, not to take in these little experiences of beauty all around that we kind of start missing from early on in life. And so, you know, you said, oh, well, you know, ambitions for life and so on. I, I think, you know, for myself, I can get very busy with things to do and, and, uh, and so on. And just to forget to savour the moment, you know, just watering the garden this morning. There's so many beautiful things in flower. And just as you notice you're watering, it's not like, oh, I've got to get some water on the garden. It's a hot summer's day. It's like, just enjoy the flowers as you're doing it. Notice this beautiful orb weaving spider that's um, there on its web and it's just a beautiful spider. It's just like just all these little moments to savour that are just, a, but we've, we've stopped noticing. And children notice those things. And so to help a child to maintain that, maintain that love of beauty, maintain that connection with the moment, wow. um, I think is a, is a great gift that a, an adult can give to a child. Well, I, I'm definitely trying to do that a lot more as a uh, as a parent and also as an educator, just to take the time to say, okay, what do I need to be here in terms of my own children? Do I need to be a is it, do I need to be an, an authority figure and get them to bed, or do I just need to be a dad and give them a hug? And I think I've noticed that um, <clears throat> excuse me during uh, when it's bedtime and I'm rushed and I know I've got to I've got a pile of marking I need to do the moment they're in bed and when I'm trying to multitask that's when I get short. And I had this moment last night with my kids and it's like, I think I just need to be a dad. I just need to climb into bed with them, give them a hug, um, sing a song to them, talk to them about their day. Um, and I think I'm trying a lot harder just to uh, just to be a bit more present and just to acknowledge what do I need to do now? Um, and when I'm tired, when I'm cranky, when I'm sick, you kind of make poor decisions, you know? So uh, I'm trying to be a bit more self-aware. And I think this practice of mindfulness is, has really helped just to slow down, think about what we uh, just allow the thoughts to, to come and go and, uh, and not try and be somewhere or do something because life is pretty stressful. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that's a lovely example you give of just being with the kids. And in this moment, that's what life's presenting. You respond to that. But when you, when you then leave the, the room and then you go to the marking, what you're going to is, the marking with is a calmer, more attentive state of mind. Yeah. Rather than, you know, quickly trying to get this happening and that happening. And then you get to the marking and the mind's distracted and angry and irritated. Yeah. Whereas if you yeah. go to the marking with a calmer, clearer state of mind, yeah. Things flow a whole lot easier. And I think that that's part of what it means to live mindfully. And, um, and this sort of thing that seems, but if that in that moment, that's mm. what it means to be present, not to be distracted by the next thing I've got to do. I was um, really interested to read uh, Christine Rosson's work. Um, and she, she was, um, you referenced her quite a bit, and she talks about the myth of multitasking. And one of the studies which really stood out to me is it said that when I quote her, um, a worker's distracted by email and phone calls suffer a fall in IQ more than twice that found in marijuana smokers. <laughs> and that is... Um, that's terrifying. And I, and I think for many years, I thought that I could do the marking, put the kids to bed. I could do the vacuuming. I could be a great husband. I could. And now I'm realizing, like, I can't 
I need to do one thing well and move on to the next thing. Mm. I can't be doing 50 different things. And that I read that that quote and I just sort of sat there and went, oh my goodness, is is that a um is that a common um is that a common finding? Are we able to multitask? Are we like, or am I just particularly poor at it? It's no, no, no. Don't feel bad about this at all, Matthew. This oh, is awful. One, of the, one of the modern myths. Yeah. And and perhaps before you know we go any further, we should define what we mean. Yes. Or at least I'll say what I mean by complex yeah. multitasking. If you're trying to do two complex things at the same time, then that's complex multitasking. Wow. If you're doing one complex thing, you do that, then you move to the next complex thing, you do that, then, you know, that's not complex multitasking. You're just doing one thing and then moving on to the next. But you're trying to drive that car and talk on the phone at the same time, that's complex multitasking. So you're more than four times as likely to have a motor vehicle accident if doing that, for example. So it affects trying to do multiple complex things at the same time like a teacher who's trying to listen to three different kids that are trying to talk to the teacher at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yep. You got to manage the inputs yep. one child at a time. Now you first No, I'll be with you in a moment. You first Now, What did you want to say? And give that child proper yep. attention, respond. Yep. Good. Now what, you're next. What did you want to. So to manage the attention, engage with one thing at a time, but there's this modern myth that we both can and should um, complex multitask. And it's, it's a, a complete nut of furphy. So we increase the mental load, we increase errors, we impair our memory, we impair our decision-making, activate the whole stress response that's required for fighting tigers and lions and that kind of thing is activated and grinding away in the background. We impair our communication, our emotional intelligence. There is nothing good that comes of it because it's not consistent with how the human brain works. And if kids tell you, oh, yeah, well, you just didn't, weren't brought up with it. And I, I can, I can uh, you know, <clears throat> stream my favourite shows at the same time as I'm studying, at the same time as I'm eating, at the same time as I'm on Facebook, and uh, you just can't do it. It's like the kid is fooling themselves and they are trashing their ability to pay attention. And it's a terrible habit. It costs us an enormous amount in terms of time and errors and accidents and productivity and everything else. And all we get in return is stress. And that's why when, say, teaching mindfulness to students or to teachers or to, to anybody working in, you know, to doctors, um, is to do experiments in complex multitasking. And if you want to take it further, you actually get an objective measure of performance while multitasking compared to performance when not multitasking. You know, one of the kinds of experiments we do to teach people what's actually going on is to say, all right, well, look, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little two-minute talk on a topic. Um, and uh, at the same time as I'm giving you this talk on the topic, I would like you to answer as, any, as many emails as you can on your smartphone. All right? So I want you to continuously answer emails on your smartphone at the same time as I'm giving you this talk on this topic. And then I'm going to give you a little five-question uh, test on what you heard at the end. And we'll see how you go. Oh, dear. <laughs> I can and see so, where this is going. I've done this. I mean, I, I think that I am the the one person in life that is um, that is able to pull this off. And I sadly, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and look, the average is about one one and a half correct out of five. That's the kind of average. And then I say, right, I'm going to give you a little two minute talk on a topic, a different topic. 
And um, but just give me your full and undivided attention. Then I'll give you a little five question um, test on that. And people will get four, four and a half out of five correct. When I talk to students, I say, well, you've just gone from an abject fail to a high distinction. Which do you want to do when you're trying to study at home? And it's like, and it's like, I didn't realize I thought I was paying attention to both things, but I didn't realize I'm trying to do the email. And all of a sudden, I'm not hearing what you're saying. All of a sudden, I listen to what you're saying, and I'm not paying attention to what's on my smartphone. I didn't realize my attention was flicking back and forward. And I didn't realize that all of a sudden, I, I forget what was said a moment ago. And it's like, well, that's you're getting a look at what's actually going on. Wow. It's and look, I'm sure the people that are listening to this podcast um, have all done that. And it's it's really confronting because I think that we all think we are the exception to the rule, but sadly, <laughs> sadly we're not. Um, it would be amiss of me not to talk about some of your um, amazing work and also terrifying findings with stress. Um, is, does stress really have an impact on us, on our, on our health, on our physical health? I, I'm, I'm looking at some of the and um, uh, some of the work uh, that you have uh, that you reference called the allostatic load uh, mm. talking about the damage that it actually does to our body um, is it really as serious as we uh, as you suggest look if if you said uh, if you flog your car and you really hammer your car and the way you're driving it really hard all the time is that going to make the parts wear out faster is that going to put your repair bills up is that going to shorten the lifespan of the car so yeah it will so, well, well, it's a little bit like that with the body. And now I don't want everybody to sort of get afraid of stress. It really depends on what we mean by stress. Yeah. Because being challenged, um, having a positive attitude to being challenged is actually quite good for us. Yeah. But the kind of stress that uh, is so unhelpful is, is the kind of stuff where we're, say, fighting with the phantoms of our imagination. Yeah. You wake up in the morning, nothing's even happened yet, but the mind floods with a thousand things I've got to do and what if this happens and will I get to this and what if I don't, what will somebody else say? And all of a sudden, we haven't even put our feet to the ground and we've already got a thousand stressors in our head, you know, and so, so this kind of internally generated stress where we're taking the imagination to be real and we're totally lost touch with present moment reality, um, you know, is the kind of stress that causes this allostatic load, this wow. unnecessary activation of the stress response. And the stress response is fantastic. It's the fight or flight response because when you're, you know, trying to wrestle, you know, a tiger or, a, you know, <laughs> you know, run away from a killer wombat or something uh, when you're on a bushwalk or, you know, that fight or flight could be the difference between life mm. and death. Mm. But when those stressors are imaginary, and that's 99.9% .9 of the stressors, then that's creating a wear and tear and it accelerates the aging even down to the DNA of our cells. Wow. So learning to be mindful, come back to the present moment. All of a sudden you realize you're just jiggling a tea bag and a teacup Wow. You know, <laughs> you know, you're not actually having this imaginary conversation with the person later on. You're actually just standing at your kitchen bench, jiggling a tea bag and a teacup. Wow. Just come back to the car you're driving. Just come back to the taste of the food that you're eating. Just come back to what the person's saying in the meeting when they're speaking. When you do that, 
then we switch off the unnecessary activation, that stress response. So all those negative effects wow. are reversible. But wow. we have to learn to, to we, we've got to, this is turning up the lights. We've got to see what we're doing unconsciously to ourselves. Unconscious is just like the dark room. Wow. <laughs> Conscious just means you've turned on the lights and what was there is still there, but all of a sudden we're seeing it. Oh, wait a sec, look at what my imagination's doing. I've had, a, I've had an argument with that person a thousand times before I've even seen them in the meeting. I've gotten outraged at all the things that this person said to me, but they haven't actually said anything of that to me because it's all just been happening in my imagination. Wow, look at what I'm doing to myself. Wow. Or I've replayed that past stressor a thousand times in my mind and wished that it was different. And I've taken one stressor and I've turned it into a thousand. Wow. Isn't that incredible what I'm doing internally all the time? I wonder what would happen if I came back to present moment reality. Wow. I, I definitely do that. Like I, I worry about all these things and the vast majority of them never happen, um, which is a, just a real wasted amount of energy. And I think learning that skill of being able to come back to the present and say, okay, let's not make this in a mountain into a molehill, a molehill into a mountain, sorry. And, yeah. and what are the facts here? And it's and even like I've, I found the work of um, Elizabeth Blackburn so interesting because she talks about like the the actual impact that it can have on our on our DNA. And I always thought stress was was kind of out here, but the impact that it can have on our body. And she even says we can be a decade older by middle age if we have increased levels of anger and hostility. That's yeah. terrifying. Mm. Yes, that's right. That's she won the Nobel Prize um, Medicine in 2009 um, for being part of the team that discovered um, telomeres. Yeah. And I won't go into all the genetics of it, but um, these are like the genetic markers of our biological age. And, you know, how long or short the telomeres are um, is kind of a, a pretty good measure of how fast we're aging. The shorter the telomeres, the older we are. And, um, but the acceleration of the shortening of those telomeres um, happens with a whole range of psychological factors, um, not only psychological stress, but also anger and hostility wow. and so on, um, as well as unhealthy lifestyle and poor sleep, et cetera. Put it the other way, though, everything we do to help to just reduce the unnecessary activation of that stress response, one job at a time, one moment at a time, don't get lost in the figments of our imagination, et cetera. Come back to reality, deal with things on their merits, et cetera. But also exercise well, you know, eat a good diet. All those kinds of things slow down the aging process right down to the DNA of the cells. Because people think, oh, stress, it just affects a little bit of tension on my shoulders and a little bit around my jaw. And so it's going down to the DNA of the cells. And um, and and I can remember as a, as a teenager, I was saying before about, you know, um, noticing these things myself. And I can remember when I used to do quite a lot of competitive swimming um, in my teenage years. And, um, and in the lead up to big swimming meets, I would often get very nervous and, um, you know, oh, the heart going, you know, feeling tense. And one day I had this sort of moment of waking up and seeing what was going on, getting, you know, anxious about this um, swimming meet in a couple of weeks' time. And all of a sudden I realized that I was totally in my imagination about what's going to happen in a couple of weeks from now and imagining myself standing on the starting blocks and, oh, and all of a sudden I realized I was in a dream world. And, and I took that dream world to be real. 
And that's what all of this activation, this stress response in the body was about. And the body felt awful. And I didn't have the language for it, but all I knew is that that's not right. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not good for the body. Now I can talk to you about the biology of it and so on, but it, intuitively that is not good for the body. But as soon as I came back to the present moment and realized I was sitting on a very comfortable chair with a lemon-scented gum tree just outside the French doors in our old house that I was living at with a bottle bird singing in the, in the gum tree. And all of a sudden, as I came back to the present moment, it was Saturday morning and dappled sun, I realized I'm in a really lovely spot. And as soon as I came back to the present moment, that stress response switched itself off. Wow. I thought, that feels right. And I kind of realized that I was in a dream world and need to just be more in the moment. And wow. that was the solution to a lot of the anxiety that was being felt. So these things we can explore. We've got our internal barometer. The research can tell us one thing from the outside, but we've got that internal barometer to actually notice this for ourselves, to take our own internal temperature, if you like, and, um, and, um, and learn to work with this in a sort of more mindful way in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah. It, it's so interesting, and, and I really um, like how you took your own, you, you take your own personal experience from as a teenager, obviously uh, ongoing, and, and really saw that the the science and the data backed up what you were feeling. And I think that's really it makes it much more meaningful. I think because you had your personal experience and also your mm. um, more um, objective academic um, career, if you like. Um, just in closing, and I, I, I want to be respectful of your time, and, and thank you for being so present and so engaging. Um, with me this morning, but it would be a miss of me uh, not to quickly ask you about this, the, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And, and I just want to get your thoughts on um, uh, what you think uh, the pandemic has shown us about the importance of mental health more broadly, and also um, what you think the role uh, of schools are in terms of um, building those, uh, this understanding with young people. So it's a two-part question. Yeah. A little well, bit tricky, sorry. Yeah, look, I think that the pandemic um, has been, to some extent, a, a challenge for our physical health, obviously. <clears throat> Although, you know, young children, younger adults, <clears throat> the, the risk is relatively low. So we've got to keep risk in perspective. There's no absolutely, you know, just getting in the car and taking the kids to school is a far greater health risk for the kids than you know, um, COVID would be, for example. You know, we've got to keep things in yeah, perspective yeah. Um, in terms of the health risk. But the the response to it, closing down schools and and the isolation, the homeschooling, the, the stresses for many families. Although it's been a great opportunity for for some families to connect more, but you know, the potential challenges and the lack of socialisation for kids and so on is is obviously going to be a significant. Um, potential issue for their children's emotional and social development. And so a lot of care has got to go into that. Um, we want to, you know, we don't want to ignore the realities of the whole COVID situation, but we don't want to teach children to panic or get overly scared about it, but to take appropriate measures that, you know, health measures and hygiene measures and so on but we don't want to teach the children to panic um, or to teach the children to be anxious about something, but to give something the respect it deserves. Mm. Like there's a difference between giving a snake <laughs> the respect that it deserves rather than 
getting afraid of the, the snake and so on. We don't want to teach fear, but we want to teach appropriate respect and to respond appropriately to something that's a potential threat. But um, so I think that there's that whole, that whole issue and it'll be interesting to see how that goes because this is not going to be over at the end of this 12 months or just with a couple of vaccinations. Developmentally for young children, this, this could have a long future. We need to sort of be conscious of how we help kids to reconnect and integrate. And schools, I think, have got an vitally important role to play. I think the sooner kids can start connecting in schools again and so on, the better it's going to be. Um, and, uh, um, and to just really help children to sort of stay grounded, as it were, uh, to teach the kids to um, uh, you know, come out of this sort of pandemic shutdown. I, I guess I'm talking as somebody who's been in Melbourne as well, where we've had very long uh, lockdowns, where it's probably hit harder than in other states or some other parts of the world. But um, it's going to be an interesting time. And uh, I don't think we're at, you know, towards the end of the game yet. I think we're sort of half time in the, uh, the COVID sort of um, pandemic as far as that's concerned. Yeah. Look, Craig, there are so many more questions I have for you. I find your work um, uh, endlessly fascinating. And as I said, I, I'm just so grateful that you would uh, take the time to, to talk with me today and also to be so present. I'm sure you have lots of other things that you could be doing, uh, but to take a call from me is a... Um, it's a huge privilege to get to speak to you. And I think um, just in closing, um, where can people find out more about your amazing work and how can they keep up with, um, with some of the research that you're doing? Um, well, obviously um, some of the books I've written from educational point of view, Mindful Learning uh, with Exile Publishing is uh, good to have a look at, um, or, uh, or the other books like Mindfulness for Life uh, and so on. So that's all going to be useful. Um, there's a, um, a course we developed at Monash University that's on the FutureLearn platform. Uh, it's a free course um, called uh, Mindfulness for Wellbeing and Peak Performance. And so that's a free online course that people can do. Um, and uh, or, But if people want to, to do it and going wrong, there, there can be a cost if they want ongoing access to those uh, materials and so on. Mm -hmm. But there's a follow-up course to that, Maintaining a Mindful Life. Um, again, on the Future Learn platform. Um, and the other thing is um, to have a look at the Monash Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. And um, so, so I'm the Director of Education there and, um, uh, and we're doing lots of uh, new educational interventions and, um, and also lots of research there on all these sorts of related topics. So people might find that of interest as well. Fantastic. Well, Craig, I will uh, get all of those links uh, from you so I can make sure I'm sending people uh, in the right uh, direction. But as I said, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me today. And, and we couldn't possibly cover the whole, the breadth of your work, but I think we got some of the essential components out. So thank you for the difference that you're making uh, in this incredibly important space. And uh, um, I look forward to seeing more of your research coming out in the future. Thanks, Matthew. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. 
I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.